Welcome back to episode five of the best movies of the decade. I'm Ro Khan. I'm Richard Roper. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the best dramas of the 2010s, and you think the film Widows is at the top. Our husbands aren't coming back. We're on our own. My husband left me the plans for his next job. All I need is a crew to pull it off. Why should we trust you anyway? Because I'm the only one standing between you and a bullet in your head. Now, the best thing we have going for us is being who we are. Why? Because no one thinks we have the balls to pull this off. I thought it was the absolute very best film of 2018, Roa. This film had so much going for it, from Steve McQueen, the Academy Award-winning director of 12 Years a Slave, to the source material, to the cast. And we'll talk about the great ensemble cast in a bit. But for people who don't know the story, this is actually inspired by a 1983 British television series of the same name. Steve McQueen, as a young lad in England, loved seeing that series and told himself one day he would love to do a cinematic adaptation. And of all the cities in the world he could have chosen to set Widows, he picked Chicago. Now, that's our hometown. Yes, and one of the things about Widows that really strikes people from Chicago is how ripped from the headlines and truly about Chicago politics this is. I actually had a chance to spend a day on set. He was adamant that it wasn't a heist movie, even though the central plot is about a group of widows of bank robbers who vow to get revenge and pull off a very brazen, daring heist. And it does have that element. But there's so much more here, Rowan. You talk about the Chicago roots. This is a film about politics and tribal warfare and class differences and neighborhoods. What are we fighting for, this? I mean, you know how many shootings happened in this city last weekend alone? 34! These people are killing each other. Robert Duvall and Colin Farrell play the father and son of the Mulligan clan, a very powerful, dominant political family. They're Irish, which is something that actually happens in Chicago. There's clear similarities to the Daily Clan, although the Robert Duvall character is actually a powerful alderman. Let me tell you something. I don't want to see you become the first mulligan to lose to it again, especially this guy. He's tricky. Okay? He's staying in. But it's fine. Okay. Yeah. It's dealt with. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Dealt with? What do you mean, dealt with? And maybe you shouldn't have been such a hard ass. Now, if you'd have just rolled over for the mayor on that housing development... I don't roll over for anybody! Okay? And for those who are not familiar with Chicago politics, all I have to do is watch Game of Thrones. Same thing. <laughs> yeah, I never thought of that. Some, with, with just less nudity. I wouldn't say less gore. <laughs> or certainly. Oh, there's less, nudity. You know, there, there's warring clans as well. Uh, well there has I'll been nudity you, too. I'll yeah. bet you the FBI has some film of, of Chicago Alderman <laughs> naked. So in addition to this very cool and complex heist movie road, there's a political story going on here. The Robert Duvall character is ready to step down Colin Farrell, his son, is supposed to be the heir apparent. He'll become either the second most powerful or most powerful person in Chicago. But he's in a tough race against an African-American candidate played by Brian Tyree Henry. And there's a lot of interesting things going on there because neither one of these characters is anywhere near squeaky clean. I've never been arrested. <laughs> Let's see if you can say that a few months from now. Well, if you pull out now, you can save yourself some money. Ton of embarrassment. Come on, Jack, I don't pull out when it feels this good. Right? <laughs> All right, don't forget to vote on August 8th. Hey, absolutely, hey. The election is on the 7th, Jack. Oh, I know. Steve McQueen loved the look of the city and also the fact that Chicago can look like the most palatial, 
uh, nirvana utopian community in the world, but also has its more than its share of, of really rough neighborhoods. So but a lot of this movie takes place on the south side of Chicago, five different churches each reflecting different faiths and different types of architecture. And then scenes in neighborhoods like Woodlawn, which are not usually filmed for big-time movies. Today we are uh, we're standing on a vacant lot. But tomorrow, thanks to MWOW, the minority women-owned work initiative my father started, this will be a thriving business owned and operated by the women of this ward. One of my favorite scenes in the movie, the Jack Mulligan character, who's played by Colin Farrell who's going to become the next alderman of the 18th ward. He makes an appearance in one of the poorer sections of his ward, promising that he's going to be bringing jobs there, et cetera, et cetera. Gets in the chauffeur SUV with his wife, who then berates him and tells him to man up and get tougher. I just, I just want to be free of this shit. can't take it anymore. Wake the fuck up, Jack. You are not going to pussy out now. What are you going to do, work in a bank? Take the train downtown, punch a clock? This is your life. This is our life. It's what we do. Everyone has a fucking sob story, most of them better than yours. So if the idea is to be mayor one day, you'd better man the fuck up. The whole scene is shot from the exterior. We never go inside the car. Every scene in a movie that's almost ever shot inside a car, we see the inside of the car. We stay outside of the car and we watch it as it goes from one of the poorest neighborhoods in the ward to the very wealthiest neighborhood in the ward, which is tucked in a little far corner of the ward so he can still say he lives there, but he lives in a mansion. You don't inherit a ward, Jack. You run for it. You have much experience in government? I live here. So do I. No, no, no. You um, own a house one block into the ward, a house people might actually want to live in. That's Chicago politics. And this film gets all those types of details perfectly, Ro. It's a smart idea, running headquarters from a church. I mean, it's illegal. There's that whole church and state thing. More illegal than nepotism? Well, nepotism isn't illegal. It's actually celebrated this in Chicago. And what's amazing about this film is Robert Duvall. In his late 80s, he still got it. The only thing that matters is that we survive. That's all. Look around you. It's like Custer's last stand is kill or be killed. Now listen to me, son. Listen, we made this city. We're not having it taken away from us by people who come here illegally or by people who can't stop, you know, making babies. And that means staying in power. At all costs. You got that? Bro, I had the privilege of actually being on the set of Widows on the day they filmed that scene, and it was a remarkable thing to behold. It's very interesting because Colin Farrell is the consummate pro, and for every take, he would hit his mark, and he would recite his lines exactly as written. Duval would do different notes. One time he was super quiet, another time he was very loud. But neither one of them ever really had to stop and ask for a line reading. It was so incredible to watch these two generations of actors at work. Listen to me, Father. I'm looking forward to the day when all this bullshit is over. And I don't have to talk to people like you. You know, because... Because you won't be here anymore. On the set that day, everybody was kind of reflecting the mood of the scene in question. Very serious. 200 people working and everybody having to be, of course, as silent as possible during the sequences. And during one of the breaks, I was around the corner where Steve McQueen was, where he's looking through the monitor, seeing the scene being filmed. And Colin Farrell comes around the corner and he goes, oh, man, with you here, I thought you were going to give me the old two fucking thumbs down right on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) Which kind of broke the tension. Everybody left. And for folks who don't know, Colin Farrell's Irish. And I will say, once in a while in the movie, you feel you're getting a little bit of an Irish accent. 
But you also get that from Chicagoans who have Irish heritage. They like to do that to remind you. Their family could be here 120 years, and people still have a brogue. And I'm one of those people. We Irish Americans, yeah. we love to wear that on our sleeve. Yeah, take that, Boston. <laughs> and Widows has one of the best casts of the decade. Incredible casting here from Viola Davis, who basically has the lead in this film. Cynthia Erivo, who's an actress who can do anything. Michelle Rodriguez. Elizabeth Debicki, who in some cases people thought gave the best performance in the movie. And then even somebody like Liam Neeson, who appears mostly in flashback sequences. But Viola Davis, it was a really interesting role. And I talked to her in Chicago about this part, and she said the main reason she took it was because she had recently turned 50, and she had yet to do a love scene. She had yet to be given a love scene. And this is somebody who has Emmys, Golden Globe, an Oscar. And she said, they don't write love scenes, meaning Hollywood in general. They don't write love scenes for women of color of a certain age. And she had a chance to have a very sexy, romantic love scene with Liam Neeson. And that's why she took this role. I have to say, the fact that this movie opens with me and Liam Neeson in bed kissing with my natural hair... Um, and, and he's not beating me, he's not my pimp. Um, that's what sold me. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, I, I'm not gonna lie because, be, be, because I see myself as a woman. And I see other women who look like me as women. Hmm. Hi, baby. Morning. Never thought I'd marry a white man or a criminal. Fucking me won't make it better. Don't make me feel like my only regret is having a child with you. Well, maybe you're right. Maybe you should have had him with someone else. Then he'd still be alive. This is a film that got a lot of recognition but didn't win major prizes, Ro. But I feel like it's the kind of movie that 10, 20, 30 years from now will be remembered better than just about any other movie of 2018. The more you keep a case in the public eye, the better your chances are getting it solved. In three, two, one. And as sad as the spectacle of these billboards might be, go girl. This reporter, for one, hopes this finally puts an end to the strange saga of the three billboards outside. This doesn't put an end to anything. This is just a start. Why don't you put that on your Good Morning Missouri Wake Up Broadcast, bitch? That's Frances McDormand from Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. She won the Academy Award for Best Actress for her portrayal of Mildred Hayes, and deservedly so. Here's the story behind this film if people don't know. A lot of people thought this was inspired by a true story because it seems like it could have been there are three billboards that go up outside, well, Ebbing, Missouri, as you could tell from the title. It's one of those titles that really lets you know what's happening, Tells right? the whole story, yeah. Like the assassination of Jesse James by the coward <laughs> Robert Ford is my favorite in that category, bro. Uh, but in this case, the writer-director of this film, Martin McDonough, he was traveling across the states 20 years before he made this movie, and he did see a billboard wondering why a crime hadn't been prevented. But that's it. You know, that became the launching point for this fictionalized story of a grieving mother her teenage daughter had been kidnapped, raped, murdered, actually set on fire. You know, the most horrific crime imaginable. And now it's more than a year after this horrible tragedy. And there are no leads, no suspects in this small town. So her character of Mildred Hayes puts up three billboards asking Sheriff Willoughby, Chief of Police Willoughby of the town, why are there no answers? Why are there no suspects? 
I'm doing everything I can to track him down. I don't think those billboards is very fair. The time it took you to get out here whining like a bitch, Willoughby. Some other poor girl's probably out there being butchered right now. But I'm glad you got your priorities straight. I'll say that for you. And Woody Harrelson just brings it as Chief Willoughby. In a career of great film performances, Roe, I thought this might have been the best piece of work Woody Harrelson has ever done. One of the things I loved about this film is it doesn't traffic in easy stereotypes or caricatures or easily resolved situations. So, yes, Mildred is rightfully livid with the sheriff, but he's not sitting on his ass, not trying to solve this case. The reality is that probably the majority of murders in this country go unsolved, and this is one of those cases. They've been working on it for a year. They just don't have any legitimate suspects. I'd do anything to catch the guy who did it, Mrs. Hayes, but when the DNA don't match no one who's ever been arrested, and when the DNA don't match any other crime nationwide, and when there wasn't a single eyewitness from the time she left your house to the time we found her, well, right now, there ain't too much more we can do. Could pull blood from every man and boy in this town over the age of eight. There's several rights laws prevents that, Mrs. Hayes. The movie establishes that really early on because you don't get the sense like in Aaron Brockovich where yeah. there's bad yeah. guys trying to cover up and then there's good guys trying to solve the crime. The Chief Willoughby character is one of those law enforcement officers that really is stuck between a rock and a hard place. It's a great analogy, Ro, when you mention films like that, like Aaron Brockovich, which I loved, but it's so easy to know who to root for and who to root against here. And this is a film that deals in layers. You know, First of all, Mildred Hayes is not a likable person, and she'll be the first one to tell you that. Hey there, Mildred. You didn't happen to pay a visit to the dentist today, did you? No. Huh? I said no. Oh, so it wasn't you who drilled a little hole in one of Big Fat Jeffrey's big fat thumbnails, no? Of course not. Huh? I said, of course not. And But, you know, she is a fiercely ferocious, loving mother. But we see in flashback sequences that things were not good with her and her teenage daughter right before her teenage daughter's disappearance. And then with the Chief Willoughby character, we get to see his home life. This is a man who's a devoted family man, loves his wife and his two young children, is also facing a terminal illness from which he will not emerge alive. And he knows that. Your final memories of me will be us at the Riverside and that dumb fishing game, which I think they cheated at. And me inside of you, and you on top of me. And barely a fleeting thought of the darkness yet to come. That was the best, Anne. Whole day of not thinking about it. Dwell on this day, baby, because it was the best day of my life. Three Billboards also contains one of my very favorite scenes of the entire decade. This is when the local parish priest comes to Mildred's home, he wants to talk her into taking down those billboards. It's an embarrassment to the chief. It's an embarrassment to the community. And he starts trying to give the wise counsel that a priest will give. And let's just say she ain't having it. And the town is dead set against these billboards of yours. Took a poll, did you, Father? You know, Mildred, if you hadn't stopped coming to church, you'd have a little bit more understanding of the depth of people's feelings. I had more than a dozen people come up to me on Sunday. So, yes, I took a poll. Well, that's not going to go well, because if we've learned anything about Mildred, she is not going to be lectured to by people she thinks are hypocrites. So she goes below the belt and indelicately compares his reluctance to the pedophile priest scandal. 
And when a person is culpable to altar boy fucking or any kind of boy fucking, because I know you guys didn't really narrow that down, then you kind of forfeit the right to come into my house and say anything about me or my life or my daughter or my billboards. And Sam Rockwell, one of the great stars of the 2010s, wins an Oscar for his work here. What's the matter with you saying that goddamn stuff on TV? My mama watches that station. Your mama doesn't know about the torturing? No, she didn't know anything about it. She's against that kind of thing. Who's against what? My mama, mama is against persons of color torturing. She said nigger torturing. I said you can't say nigger torturing no more. You gotta say persons of color torturing. For some people, his character was problematic. And this is one of those films that got initial praised almost across the board. And then there was this kind of second wave of criticism because his character, Sam Rockwell, plays a racist deputy in, in Chief Willoughby's office who is a terrible guy and does terrible things and then has a real kind of come to Jesus moment and experiences a rebirth. And some people found that unrealistic. It happens, though, sometimes in real life when terrible people who have done terrible things come to a different moment of a revelation, of illumination, and try to become someone better. I, you know, yes, it's a cinematic transformation. It might happen more quickly than it does in real life. I didn't have a problem with it. I thought, I, I believed it would happen within the context of this film. I'm sorry, Willie. You know me? I'm sorry. You're sorry, sorry for what? Throwing you out the window. I'm sorry, man. I don't care. Stop fucking crying, goddammit. What separates good films from great films is that they play on different notes. Yes. This film not only is seriously dramatic and tragic at moments, mm-hmm. but it has lighter moments as well. I think in a film like this, you're absolutely right. You need those beats where everybody can kind of take a, a, a step back and a breath and you're allowed to laugh. And Peter Dinklage <laughs> provides some of that as a really, really great guy who actually wants to have a romance with Mildred. And, you know, she treats him dismissively because she treats everyone that way. And then he really gives it back to her. And it's it's very funny, but it also rings true. I know I'm a dwarf who sells used cars and has a drinking problem. I know that. But who the hell are you, man? Hey, that billboard lady who never smiles, never has a good word to say about anybody. And who in the evening time sets fucking fire to police stations. And... I'm the one who's not a catch. And another film that features good guys who are bad guys and bad guys who are good guys. <laughs> one of the best films of the decade, Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. Good cold evening, gentlemen. Amongst your inventory, I've been led to believe it's a specimen I'm keen to acquire. When I hear that trumpet sound. What's your name? I'm on a ride right out of the ground. Django. Then you're exactly the one I'm looking for. Do you know what a bounty hunter is? You kill people, and they give you a reward. Hmm. Better they are, bigger the reward. I need your help. <laughs> What's your name? Django. The D is silent. And, Ro, we have to go back to 2012 for the release of Django Unchained. 
I call this part of the uh, Quentin Tarantino revisionist history movement where he, <laughs> we look back at certain periods in history and wouldn't it have been cooler if it happened this way? It happens in Inglorious Bastards where yeah. Hitler meets quite an end and, uh, of course, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And in this case, it's not based on a true story, but it is set in 1858 Texas. Uh, you know, a lot of people call this Tarantino's Western. He said, no, this is a Southern because it's set in the Deep South. Jamie Foxx is Django. He's the title character, right? And he is a slave. And Kerry Washington is his wife who's been separated from him. And a lot of this film is about his quest to save her. Classic Tarantinoism hero. The Kerry Washington character, her full name is Broomhilda Von Shaft. And yes, if you have the giant DNA ancestry tree of Quentin Tarantino characters and other movie characters, he believes this is the ancestor of John Shaft of detective fame. Broomhilda is like, I guess, the great, 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 great grandmother of John Shaft. So the action here takes us to the plantation of Leonardo DiCaprio's Calvin Candy character, who is truly awful. There, Dr. Schultz, played by Christoph Waltz and Django, find Brunhilda and try to buy her back. Now, considering y'all have ridden a whole lot of miles, went through a whole lot of trouble, and done spent a whole lot of bull to purchase this lovely lady right here, it would appear that Brunhilda is, in fact, the right nigger. And if y'all want to leave Candyland with Brunhilda, the price is twelve thousand dollars this film got a lot of criticism for the nature of the violence and the language yeah very intense film at the time also the all-time record for the use of the n-word i don't know who counts these you know things in movies but they did something like 153 usages of it and you know leonardo dicaprio plays this horrible monster of a man a slave owner who's just pure vicious Broomhilda here is my property and I can choose to do with my property whatever I so desire. And if y'all think my price for this year is too steep, what I'm gonna desire to do is... Then we can examine the three dimples inside Pamela's skull. Now! And DiCaprio, who was famously just, you know, an absolute gentleman and a, and a sweet guy, was having some trouble saying the N-word over and over again and, and spewing these vicious, vicious lines of hatred. And Samuel L. Jackson took him aside and said, look, this is Tuesday for me. Just get through it, you know, and kind of put him at ease and said, and basically gave him the green light, if you will. Some people still had some problems with it. It's tricky business for white actors to be saying the N-word in movies, regardless of the fact that they're fictional. There are a lot of actors who won't take a role where they have to play a Nazi uh, or a bigot, which is the same thing in many cases, or any kind of a racist. They just don't feel comfortable doing it. Whenever you see actors taking on these types of roles where they're really playing some of the scum of the earth, hateful, not cartoon villains, but real-world villains who say the most vicious things, I give him a lot of credit. Leonardo DiCaprio is already established as one of the world's biggest stars and doesn't need to do a role like this except for he believes in material and he wants to take on fresh challenges. It's a custom here in the South. Once a business deal has concluded that the two parties shake hands, it implies good faith. I'm not from the South. But you are in my house, doctor. So I'm afraid I must insist. 
you know, this again, bro, this is a, you know, a kind of a fantasy, a very violent fantasy, and it's filled with anachronistic touches. Almost all of the music is either a blend of current hip hop. Or specifically between the late 60s and the early 70s, which was supposed to reflect the time of unrest in America and the movement of black power. And then you actually get Jim Croce's I Got a Name showing up on the soundtrack. Like the north wind whistling down the sky. I've got a song. I've got a song. Showing Jamie Foxx and the great Christoph Waltz's character, Dr. Schultz, bonding as buddies as if we're all of a sudden watching Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And for the second Tarantino movie in a row, Christoph Waltz just blows everybody off the screen. It's interesting, too, Rogue, because he did not want to play another character similar to his villain in Inglorious Bastards. And in this case, he made it very clear that the guy he was playing is a good guy. He's actually a real hero of the film. Alexandre Dumas, he wrote The Three Musketeers. Yes, of course, Doctor. I figured you must be an admirer. You named your slave after his novel's lead character. If Alexandre Dumas had been there today, I wonder what he would have made of it. You doubt he'd approve, huh? Yes, his approval would be a dubious proposition at best. Soft-hearted Frenchie. Alexandre Dumas is black. And once again, Quentin Tarantino puts as much energy and thought into the music selections as he does into the story, the casting, the production design. I mean, the music is always another character in a Tarantino film. And it's everything from modern stuff to stuff that sounds like it's out of a spaghetti western to stuff that's just pure Tarantino. No telling how all this will work out, but I've come too far to go back now. I am looking for free. And among the best dramas of the decade, 2016's Manchester by the Sea. Where are we going, to the orphanage? Shut up. Get in the car. Can't obey your orders until you unlock the door. Whatever you decide, he can always stay with us if he wants to come up weekends. Do you want to be his guardian? Well, He doesn't we want to already, be my guardian, for Christ's sake. We've got a house, we're trying to lose some kids, kids at this point. House? Hello. Hello, Lee. I just want to call and say I'm sorry. How's Patrick doing? Well, he doesn't really open up with me. Do you actually have sex with these girls? Strictly basement business. What does that mean? It means I'm working on it. One of the best films of 2016 and one of the best films of the decade, Row. This is uh, written and directed by Kenneth Lonergan. It's interesting because Three Billboards was the product of somebody who's a writer-director who started on the stage, and so did Kenneth Lonergan. He's done a lot of great plays. And the writing is, I think, the one consistency especially when we talk about the best dramas, how great these screenplays are. For people who haven't seen this, Casey Affleck won the Academy Award for Best Actor. and He plays a guy named Lee. He's a custodian living almost like a hermit in a town in Quincy, Massachusetts. Then he gets word that his older brother, played by Kyle Chandler, has passed away, and he has to return to his hometown of Manchester-by-the-Sea. And surprised to learn that now he's the guardian of his brother's teenage son. I don't understand which uh, part are you having trouble with? Well, I can't be his guardian. Well, uh... I mean, I can't. Well, naturally, I, I assumed Joe had discussed all this with you. No. And Casey Affleck's character, Lee Chandler, is a real pariah in his hometown. As we learn in flashback sequences, Roe, 
his character, he was married to Michelle Williams' character. They had three young children, and the Affleck character was a hardcore alcoholic who one night decided to keep partying and left the house for more liquor, and a fire started, and all three children were killed. So now he's back in town. She's moved on. She's actually become, uh, you know, got another relationship going on, but and they haven't talked really since then, but everybody in the town blames him for the death of those three children. But soon after he's moved back to the town, he runs into her on the street. My heart was broken. It's always going to be broken. But I know yours is broken too. But I don't have to carry. I said things that I should fucking burn in hell no. for what I said to you. No. It, it no, was no, just. No, 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 Randy, no. I'm just sorry. It's, it's, I, I can't. Exp- I can't. They love you. And I know, Ro, around this time, people are thinking, my gosh, this sounds like such heavy material. But it's great art, and great art often can inspire you. I remember years ago, Roger Ebert used to tell the story of someone who called the Sun-Times and says, what, what should I see at the movies? And he says, oh, you should see this new film by Igmar Bergman. It has life. It has death. It's very heavy. It has truths about the true meaning of existence. And she said, oh, my gosh, that doesn't sound like anything I'd ever want to see. And I get that. Some people just don't, you know, they want to go to movies for escapism. I feel that when you see a film like this that does deal in some really heavy stuff, there are, though, there's moments of redemption. There are moments of inspiration and also stuff that really makes you think. What's in Boston? You're a janitor. So what? You could do that anywhere. There's plenty of toilets and clogged up drains all over town. I don't want to All my friends are here. I'm on the hockey team. I'm on the basketball team. I got to maintain our boat now. I work on George's boat two days a week. I got two girlfriends, and I'm in a band. You're a janitor and Quincy. What the hell do you care where you live? Don't we want movies that resonate with us, not just days and weeks, but years after we see them? That's why it's so hard to make these movies, right? Because it's hard to get the funding. That's absolutely true. You need star power behind these films. And in fact, Matt Damon is the one who developed this work and was going to star in it. And, you know, Matt Damon can get a movie made. And he couldn't do it because of his schedule. A window wouldn't open up. He was the one that really pushed for Casey Affleck. But the reality is, Ro, you're absolutely right. Even with Michelle Williams and Casey Affleck, who's a little bit of a name, and Kenneth Lonergan, who has such a great reputation, this film is not going to get a lot of funding, and it was you know, made on a pretty small budget. Nine million dollars. Yeah, nine million bucks. Okay, I didn't even realize that. It's also, I think, very hard for Hollywood to capture life in blue-collar towns without coming across as condescending and turning all the locals into these colorful sorts. That ain't this movie. It's set in Massachusetts, but whether you're from almost any part of the country, either you came from a neighborhood like this or you know it. The people are honest and hard and hard-nosed and hard-working, but not necessarily going to greet you with a hug when you walk into town. Hey, it's okay. Hey, hey, your hey, fucking hey, face, you it's fucking okay. asshole. It's okay. It's, it's okay. Asshole. It's okay. Thank you. Thank you. It's okay. Uncle Lee, are you fundamentally fucking unsound? Asshole. There's a, a subplot here with Lucas Hedges playing the 16-year-old son of the brother who has just died and Casey Affleck's character kind of being charged with looking after him. And there are some moments there that are almost tough to watch because they're so real. I'm still the trustee. But all the financial stuff that Joe set up for me is going to get transferred over to George. So basically everything's staying the same except you don't have to move. And, but like who's, are they going to be my guardians or are you going to? They're going to adopt you. Anyway, that's just how I set it up. You don't have to. It's up to you. So you're just going to disappear? No. No. 
I set it up this way so you can stay here. And they're really glad to have you. They I know, you. I know. I mean, they're great, but... W <sighs> Why can't you stay? Come on, Patty. A lot of these films that are very serious, people say, oh, there's no room for them in Hollywood anymore. And yet there is, uh, whether they're theatrical releases or they're on one of the streaming services. And these films can sometimes be quite profitable because they didn't cost that much to make. In many cases, the actors will even defer their salaries for a cut of the profits because they believe so deeply in the material. Among the best dramas of the decade is a movie you might not have seen, but you should. 2019's The Farewell. What's wrong, Dad? Please tell me. Your nan is dying. She doesn't know, so you can't say anything. The family thinks it's better not to tell her. I love this movie, Ro. I want to wrap my arms around this entire film. I loved it so much. We talk about films inspired by real-life events or based on a true story. This one starts with a title card that says, this film is based on an actual lie. We'll have to go to China. Wedding is an excuse so everyone can see her. He's my only cousin. Don't you think I should be there? You can't hide your emotions. If you go, then we'll find out right away. But what that means is it's a lie that takes place in the movie. So Aquafina, people know her as the wacky friend in Crazy Rich Asians and her music and commercials. She's very, very funny. But this is primarily a dramatic role. One of the few good memories of my childhood were those summers at Nine Eyes. They had that garden. Yeah, yeah, and I would catch dragonflies. And then we just moved to the States. Everything was different. Everyone was gone. It was just the three of us. She plays Billy Wang, who lives in the States, kind of an underachiever. She's an artist, but she just got a rejection letter from the Guggenheim Fellowship, so she's not really making it. Now, meanwhile, back in China, her beloved grandmother, they call her, they call Nene is the term that's used, has been diagnosed with a terminal illness. But according to the culture, the family is keeping this from Nene. They're telling her that she's going to be just fine because the cultural belief is the whole family should bear that burden, not the person who's going to die. Why is that better? Chinese people have saying, when people get cancer, they die. Now, Billy's parents tell her she's got to stay home in the States because she loves her nene so much. She's never going to be able to keep a straight face and keep the secret from her. But she figures out a way to get to China. Now, the conceit that gets the whole family to this village is there's a cousin, a Chinese cousin who lives in Japan. This is definitely a cultural film and of its time. And I love that. He's coming home to the village in China for his wedding which gives an excuse for the whole family to get together. But the, what they're really doing is getting together to say goodbye to Nene. But Nene doesn't know it because Nene thinks she's just fine. And like so many of the great dramas throughout time, it revolves around a family. What I love about The Farewell and what Lulu Wang did here, Ro, is those of us who aren't familiar with a lot of different aspects of Chinese culture, we do get an introduction with Aquafina's character kind of explaining it to us. For example... At funerals, because some members of the family don't like to openly, outwardly show emotion, they hire professional mourners to wail at these services. And you see this scene, and it's very dramatic, but also really funny. <laughs> this movie is both in English and Mandarin. And, and, you know, that's played often for laughs here, Ro, with people trying to understand each other, because the character of Billy, Aquafina's character, she's rusty with her native Mandarin, so sometimes she says stuff that's not right. And then the Japanese cousin, his fiance, is Japanese. She has no idea what anyone's saying here. 
And sometimes the film is in English. Sometimes there are subtitles. I think the way it goes back and forth, again, is such a great reflection of our times and our multicultural society. So this is a film in which we learn a lot about an ancient, wonderful culture, but also there are so many universal experiences when it comes to family. One of the very best films of the decade coming at the very end of the decade. I believe Aquafina deserves serious consideration for Best Actress. And coming up on the sixth and final episode of Best Movies of the Decade, we're going to be looking at the top ten films of the 2010s. I can't wait to find out who I picked. Just give us a hint. I can tell you this much. There are a total of ten on my ten best list. All right. Thanks for nothing. You'll have to listen. Don't forget to subscribe to the Best Movies of the Decade on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to consume podcasts. Check out Richard Roper's reviews at suntimes.com, and you can listen to me, Rokan, weekday afternoons, 3 to 7 p.m. Central Time on WGNRadio.com.